Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us right now, really for a conversation of the day, is Mr. Hahn, Dr. Hahn of the FDA. To be very direct here, when you are a radiologist and an oncologist at MD Anderson, when you walk in the room, people should be silent and listen. Dr. Hahn, we are honored to have you with us. Is Washington listening to you and your FDA? Uh, well, good morning. Um, and uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I think particularly around the vaccine. Um, we have uh, been getting the message out that our terrific career scientists um, have been looking critically at all the data and made a decision based upon the science and data. And we're very confident about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. Dr. Stephen Hahn, it comes down to a confidence and a trust, and it's one thing to see the president-elect out being shot. Have you had the vaccine yet, sir? I have not, and that's not because of any lack of trust. I'm waiting for my turn based upon risk factors. I do actually have adult children, who, uh, one child who's received it, and so um, that should tell you a lot about my right. confidence in it, that's for sure. Where do we need to get to with the vaccines? Are you and the FDA more focused on a broad set of vaccines, or are you focused on the millions required to get to that hurdle rate that is magical? So we're focused on both because it's 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 really important. So we we need to get to the point where we have herd immunity in the United States, frankly, around the world, uh, to stop the spread uh, of this 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 virus. Um, and we experts think that 70 to 80 percent of the population vaccinated or had the disease. So there's a, a multi-pronged approach. One is working with the developers of the vaccines still in development. Um, to, to help get them through the development process, through the clinical trials, and then an application to us, at which point we will review the, the full data package. And then also making sure that we're working with the manufacturers of the two authorized vaccines to make sure there's as much ramp up as possible. And that includes providing information about the supply chain, also making sure that there's a high quality of manufacturing, which we believe there is. Commissioner, how do you combat accusations of political interference in the very medical deliberations of the FDA? So um, our response is to be transparent. As you know, in June and then in October, we issued guidance around the vaccines. And we've done this for, we've issued more guidance this year than in, a, than in that period of time than I think we ever have. And the reason for that is we wanted everyone out there who is developing med medical products to know what our thinking was. What would we need to see in order to do an authorization for any medical product? Now, particularly for vaccines, <clears throat> we put those guidances out so that the, the manufacturers would know what information to send to us in an application. We stuck to that guidance, we followed that guidance, and we had unprecedented transparency <clears throat> around our review process with an open public discussion of the data. No other regulatory agency in the world has done that. I think that provided great confidence to the American people. Dr. Hahn, we look at Silver Spring, Maryland, and the set of buildings that you have out there and the heritage back to how America didn't do thalidomide like so many others. And you've <clears throat> dovetailed it over your career, Dr. Fauci's career, who folks will be with Bloomberg, Bloomberg later, the good people at CDC as well. Are you confident we can get our science back into the system? 
Oh, I'm 100% confident. Um, I have, it's been such a privilege to work with our scientists. Um, I have come in my career as a, an oncologist to depend upon the FDA. Um, I know that my colleagues in medicine do as well. What I can tell you in, uh, is that every decision that we made has been based upon the existing scientists. We've had to be pragmatic. We've had to make decisions based upon limited data sets, but we've always updated them as more data came in. Mm -hmm. And we will continue to do that. And our decisions are made by career scientists at the FDA. I want you to address for those listening and watching right now, Dr. Hahn, the shock of anaphylactic shock or something of that variance. Walk through the statistics you have learned about what we see in the modern media. We go up to Alaska, wherever, and someone is shocked by the giving of the vaccine vaccine. Put that in the proper science perspective. Yeah, really important. Uh, this is such a great question. And it's, it's, uh, it's, I'll put my doctor hat on because Please. when you talk to someone about a side effect, if it's uncommon or not, you, you put it in plain language. So the way I would describe this is the clinical trial data from the vaccines did not show a serious risk of anaphylaxis, that most serious side effect. But if there is a side effect, that's one in a million. Let's just use that as an example, or one in 500,000. That's, you're, you're less likely to uh, have anaphylaxis than you are to uh, get into trouble walking across the street in a crowded mm -hmm. road. And so it's a very low frequency event. If it does occur, we're monitoring these very closely. Um, and as you scale up vaccination and you vaccinate millions of people, you might see a very uncommon event. It's why people have to be observed. It's why we have to have the protection there should an allergic event occur. We believe it's a very uncommon event. We're still looking into some of these uh, events that have been reported. We take them very seriously and we'll continue to provide that information to the American people. Dr. Hahn, we learned in February and March the dynamics of a horrific virus. It's a three-form differential equation, folks. All you need to know is there's a lot of moving parts. I want you to go back to Rice University in the math that you did years ago on when we can say all clear based on the complex moving parts of multiple vaccines, booster shots, and the thirst to get the vaccine of America, when can you say within a window we will be all clear? So, you know, I learned a long time ago as a cancer doctor, I don't have a crystal ball. My sincerest hope that in 2021 we will achieve um, herd immunity, and we can put this uh, pandemic behind us. That was way too short a question there. I think Dr. Hahn really didn't want to talk about that, but you got out nicely to 2021. Johnson & Johnson, I believe, has a distinction of, a, of a, some form of vaccine without a booster shot. Partition vaccines with a booster shot and those without. One-shot efficacy. So this is, this is all based upon the development process. And in the development process, you move from developing the vaccine with a platform to animals, to humans. And it's during that development process that a, a developer would figure out, do you need one shot or two shots uh, to get the sort of immunity that you think would protect people? So as it's publicly known, J&J &J has a vaccine that's that's one shot, not two. Um, if that if that passes through the development process and we see great efficacy and safety, that would be a, a really terrific uh, event for, for us. We have to see what the clinical trial data, though, show to determine whether it's safe and effective. I believe the countable statistic, Dr. Hahn, is for offspring. I think that's what you've generated here in a wonderful marriage over X number of years. How will the Hans handle the Christmas 
social life of a family as Prime Minister Johnson and, frankly, President Trump are focused on? How do the Hans do the holiday season? Well, we socially distant. We, we normally have a big gathering, 20, 25 people. We're not doing that this year. Immediate family. Um, if we do have non-immediate family uh, in, in, the, in, in the area, we're going to socially distance and wear a vaccine, excuse, wear masks, uh, but we're going to keep it very, very limited this year. And there'll, there'll be other Christmases. Um, what's really important um, is to protect the most vulnerable and to, to prevent community spread. We all have a responsibility there. One final question, Dr. Hahn. Of course, the news at Pfizer in some form of many millions of new vaccines for America. When do we say fully vaccinated or at least mostly vaccinated for the elderly, the true aged, and also for the essential workers in our hospitals? So uh, the CDC and the ACIP committee has labeled this 1A, 1B, 1C, and 1A and 1B fits for most of those folks that you're talking about. And um, I believe the schedule at this point is that we can get almost all of those people vaccinated by the first quarter, so by the end of March, maybe sooner. Um, and so we're working really hard at FDA, uh, uh, to, with hand in hand with CDC, to try to get as many vaccines out there as possible and work with the manufacturers to ramp up manufacturing. Thank you so much, Dr. Hahn. Greatly appreciated today. Stephen Hahn of the FDA and a commissioner uh, here as they've had a hugely successful week rolling out the vaccine. The president blowing up the dialogue last night in the seven o'clock hour. What is so important here, and I listened to the entire four minute video, I believe the president led with the cuts he needs or the complaints, I should say, starting with the funding of Cambodia. There are others out there worried about the good that is within the bill. We heard that from, among others, Senator Schumer of New York. And let's cut to the chase. Is it about Cambodia or is it about the end train to Coney Island? Patrick Foy joins us, who knows about the end train to Coney Island. To be clear here, Mr. Foy and the MTA, you're funded within this present bill, so the end train runs to Coney Island, right? Uh, morning, Tom. That's exactly right. Thanks to Senator uh, Schumer's intervention, the, the bill that was passed uh, by the Senate and the House earlier in the week provides over $4 billion of funding for the MTA. It, it's critically needed. The effect of that is it will cover almost all of our deficit in 2021 and the drastic service cuts that we've been talking about on subways, buses, commuter rails and laying off up to 10,000 of our colleagues will be avoided at least right. in 2021. <clears throat> if the lawyer from Fordham in Skadden Arps gets a cup of coffee this morning with the president of the United States, how do you straighten him out? Look, I, I think the American people need relief. Uh, states and cities need relief. Transit agencies need relief. And the MTA definitely needs relief. The bill that was passed uh, earlier in the week is incredibly important for the MTA, and the MTA is critical to the economic recovery of, of New York City. Not having to make reductions on subways and buses up to 40% service reductions and 50% on the commuter rails and avoiding laying off 10,000 of our colleagues is incredibly important to the New York economy. NYU's Rudin Center uh, said that we could lose up to 450,000 jobs in the region if we had to make these cuts in about 60 billion of uh, gross the regional product. That's a national issue. This bill gets it done. President-elect Biden's right. There will be uh, a need for additional negotiations and legislation and relief 
next year, but that's next year. This bill, yeah. it's really, from an MTA point of view, a matter of critical urgency. And just to give you some numbers behind it, $14 billion of aid was committed for public transit in the bill, at least $4 billion of that going toward the MTA. How much time, Pat, does that buy you before uh, traffic on uh, the subways, on the buses, really has to pick up back to something that resembles pre-pandemic? Lisa, it, it buys us a year. It buys us all of 2021. It covers... Uh, the $4 billion plus covers the MTA deficit in 2021. We'll need more relief then. But to get us through this year is an extraordinarily important. We won't have to lay off 10,000 people. And we'll be able to continue and grow the service that we're providing for the essential workers and first responders and office workers as they return to uh, New York. So, Pat, there is a concern about whether people will have the same confidence in public transportation post-pandemic just because of the incredible response and the potential for transmission of disease. What are you finding? How are you convincing people that it's not a vector of disease and that they will be safe coming back to the subway even after the vaccine? Uh, great question. So a couple of things. One is we're disinfecting, not cleaning, but we're disinfecting every subway station and subway car same on commuter rail, same on our paratransit vehicles multiple times a day. Uh, we are innovating in terms of uh, air exchange, antimicrobials, ultraviolet, sea light, uh, and, and other products, some of which are in place, some of which are being piloting, some of which we're experimenting with uh, government uh, agencies. Around the world, no vector of uh, coronavirus-19 has been identified with mass transit. Governor Cuomo's reported recently that about 70, nearly 75% of transmissions occurs in private gatherings in homes. Transit, uh, all of our passengers have to wear a mask. It's a matter of state law as a result of the governor's executive order. And compliance is extraordinarily high, well, well over 95% mask compliance. What have you seen in the last couple of weeks, Pat Foy, in the statistics? Are people, you know, I mean, it's frankly after 9-11 with that immense fear of getting on trains. Is the fear receding? I, I think the fear is receding. The, the ridership declines uh, are worse than the Great Depression. In the worst days, March and April, subway ridership, for instance, was down 95 percent. It, it's now down about 70. That's a huge drop, but still it's a it, great improvement. Uh, on subways and buses, we're close to carrying 3 million passengers a day. It makes us the largest transit system in the country, comparing our peers to pre-pandemic right. levels. Right. But we've got, we've got a long way to go, and riders, ridership is increasing, and I believe will continue to increase. Uh, Mr. Foy, I want you to speak right now to the cities across this nation listening on radio and TV. You know what? They're not New York. They don't have the transportation grid. They're stuck in traffic out on some highway somewhere. Speak of how your world overlays with people stuck on Bloomberg Radio in some traffic jam right now, say in Dallas or in San Francisco. Well, first, Dallas and San Francisco have mass transit systems, and there's more uh, transit systems around the country uh, than, than is commonly perceived. We're obviously the largest. Uh, but uh, what I tell your listeners, for instance, in Nebraska, Tom, is that there are 2,000 Americans working in Lincoln, Nebraska, building cars for Kawasaki, uh, for New York City Transit, for the New York City subways, uh, for Metro North and Long Island Railroad. Our capital plan, $51.5 billion, which is on pause, touches nearly every state in the country. And that's why the Rudin Center indicated that there'd be, there'd be this national effect if we had to cut service right. and our capital plan. A good update. Patrick Foy, thank you so much. 
I've really looked forward to this because with all the distraction of Washington, we're observing to see if Mr. Trump tweets out after the bombshell announcement last night of his reticence of stimulus, all that's going on in Europe with Brexit and, of course, with France and England. You know what? Nothing matters right now across radio and TV in this American economy. Diane Swank has been following this for decades, her wonderful work at Bank One and onward, and now at Grant Thornton as their chief economist. Diane, thrilled to have you on with us today. In the slew of economic data, what matters to you? What matters is that we're seeing that consumer spending is pulling back or slowing down at a time when we should be ramping up, and that's because of the surge in COVID cases. We've been much less of the declines and the blow because of the surge in COVID cases has been much less than in the past. There's three key reasons for that that I think we need to keep framed in the economy today, and that's one is mitigation measures by states have not been as severe. California, an outlier there where their cases have overwhelmed hospitals now. Two is that we're coming off a lower base. Remember, you know, as we look at these unemployment claims, they're still disastrous, but off of an idea that we've already had such huge losses out there, that's important to remember as well. And it mitigates the declines from here on out. I think the other important issue is we've seen a shift in consumer behaviors. Not only are they less skittish than they were in the spring before we ever had lockdowns where they pulled back ahead of that, they've been actually somewhat jubilant in the response to the vaccine. We're seeing in behavioral economics a study that shows that people are actually more risk-taking because a vaccine is out there, even though that is making contagion worse. And what we really worry about now is what's going to happen in the wake of the Christmas holiday and how much travel we see and what that does to cases through the worst of the winter, which are supposed to crest in January. So yeah. that's a really important thing is that we still have momentum, but we are losing momentum at a critical time. And, you know, we have to step back before we two steps back before we get forward again and unleash this pent up demand. We're not out of the woods. That is for sure. Just to bring you some more numbers as they roll out. We're getting revised initial jobless claims for last week. Uh, they is revised upward. That is not good. Up is bad uh, to eight hundred and ninety two thousand from the eight hundred and eighty five thousand that were initially reported. Uh, that does taint a little bit the uh, better than expected initial jobless claims of eight hundred uh, and uh, 3,000 this week. I will say, Diane, to your point about personal income and personal spending, the decline, the bigger than expected decline that we saw in this week's data, to me, stands out even more than the initial jobless claims. Is this being driven by uh, support programs running off and people not getting as much unemployment aid? Or is this because people with higher wage jobs are getting laid off in greater numbers? Well, actually, it's interesting because we saw a major slowdown in employment gains in the month of November. It slowed to a near crawl. That's important. And what little we did get tended to be lower wage employment gains. We have seen a slowdown in hiring of higher wage jobs, which had done much better up until we got into October and November. So I think that's important as well. We also know from the high frequency data that we saw a sharp deceleration in spending in the second half of November, which included that week of Thanksgiving. 
And the deceleration, although we saw declines by low-wage and middle-wage household um, in that number, the biggest deceleration, although it was still positive in the number, was by high-wage households. And we know from earlier in the crisis that the behavior of high-wage households really matters. Not only did their incomes and adding of those jobs slow down quite dramatically in the month of November, but we also saw their behavior change. And that has ripple effects for middle and low-wage jobs. We know in New York, for instance, in the highest wage areas where the highest income was, as consumers pulled back on their spending, it meant layoffs in many mm -hmm. service sector jobs in those high wage areas. So that's what we're watching is this sort of domino right. effect you tend to get. And that's what we're worried about going forward. Well, Diane, it's a heritage of your Michigan economics, which is a good study of uh, history of economics. And so much of that is wage flatness and even outright wage deflation, whether nominal or real. How close are we to this great, great fear of some form of wage deflation? I think we're still not to wage deflation, although it is notable, and I wouldn't be surprised to see as we look into some of the data that in the height of the crisis, many firms in the spring saw this as a temporary event, and as a temporary event, actually did temporary wage cuts, which is something we never saw before, even in high-income households. And I wouldn't <clears throat> be surprised as we see, um, we saw many economies abroad shut down and go into lockdown much more aggressively on their contagion measures than in the U.S., that there is some of that behavior as well. I think we're still not into a wage deflation scenario, but it really underscores the PCE numbers ticking down a bit yeah. as well, that the fears that people had of this being an inflationary supply chain surge, which is not showing up, I think is important that this is more of a disinflationary event, well, not deflationary, but disinflationary, and that's what the Fed's worried I've about. I've got like, thank you. I've got like eight ways to go here, folks. This conversation is so important, but Diane, and I'm just going to partition right over to the gross question as Olivier Blanchard has provided leadership on. There has to be an overt policy to reflate. Do we have an overt policy to reflate? Not yet, not unless we get a lot more fiscal stimulus. This fiscal stimulus that we're talking about now, we have to see stimulus is the wrong word, relief, although there is some things in there that are for transit, a mass transit that keeps people going to low-wage jobs and for schools, which I think is very important, but really important not in that relief bill, which has yet to be signed. Um, I think it's very important to point out there's not the state and local spending that we need, the transfers to the states, and that means as we unleash pent-up demand, we're not going to really be able to fully recoup all the employment losses we, we lost because state and local governments will still be cutting. Also important is after we get through that initial surge in economic activity is the idea that we have to not only recoup what we lost and get back to the previous peak in economic activity, which was the fourth quarter of 2019. We don't expect to hit that until the second half, if we're lucky with herd immunity of 2021. That's two years lost in economic activity. But also, remember, we also lost what would have been absent COVID, and we were generating about 200,000 jobs a month. By February, that will be another 2.4 million in the hole on job gains yeah. that didn't happen because of this crisis. There's an article in Bloomberg Businessweek, the headline, it's been a great year for stocks and a bear market for humans. We get these numbers. They are dire. Markets do nothing. They are up tremendously over the past couple of months. Does that worry you? 
It does worry me, but I do think there is a fundamental break between what's happening on Wall Street and what's happening on Main Street. Wall Street is long technology and the sectors of the economy that have benefited the most from this perverse environment. The S&P 500 only accounts for about 20% of employment in the U.S. is hardly reflective of the U.S. economy and less reflective than it ever has been. At one point in time, the Dow Jones accounted for about 50% of employment in the U.S. economy. That just isn't the case anymore. While Main Street is long discretionary services and low-wage jobs. And what we're seeing is the persistence of the losses of those low-wage jobs, a slowdown in hiring of high-wage no. jobs, and that's leaving Main Street at a different place than Wall Street. We could go all morning. We can't. Diane Swank, thank you so much. With Grant Thornton off of a wall of economic data. One thing that I'm struck by is that the unprecedented has become mundane. And I think markets have been shrugging off an increasing number of unprecedented developments. <clears throat> President Trump's uh, release on Twitter, perhaps among them. And Julie Norman has been covering precedent and history and really studying it from the University College, uh, where she is a political science professor, University College London. And Julie, I'm wondering if you could paint a picture from a historical perspective of how unusual it is for a president of the United States to come in at the last minute and threaten to put a kibosh on a deal that was struck so perilously close to the deadline with bipartisan support. Well, Lisa, I mean, some of the words that we're hearing from Washington this morning are that Trump's weighing in is like a sonic boom. It's like a cannonball into calm waters. It's, it's pretty much whatever explosive image you can come up with. And, and that is just because it's so uncommon for a president to do this at something that's so last minute, but also something that's so high stakes. This is not only a bill that will bring coronavirus relief, but also uh, is the appropriations bill as well. And uh, not having this go forward could result in the government shutdown within a week. So um, very high stakes bill. The president uh, even surprising his own aides with his comments yesterday. Tom Keene oh, has been talking all morning about this person who we occasionally see on the television. He's been talking all morning about the presidential power. How much power does Trump have to come in and single-handedly stymie this deal? What's your sense of that? What's the significance of this move, Julie? Well, it's significant in that this was such uh, an achievement to have this bipartisan effort finally go forward after months of back and forth between both parties. And what is notable about this bill was that it passed quite strongly in both the House and the Senate, the Senate passing at 92 to 6. And so even if Trump were to veto it, the, Trump, the, the bill itself is veto-proof, um, but that would take weeks longer. And again, most of the country just doesn't have weeks to wait for that relief. And again, we have this government shutdown pending as well. So, um, so it is very significant. And again, right. we haven't heard from Trump exactly that he will veto it, but just that there's that potential. And we're monitoring that right now, folks, as we go into the morning in Washington. Professor Norman, what is so important here uh, is the idea of, okay, the president makes comments and they are domestic, his criticisms of pork, but a huge amount of it was directed at foreign aid. He's led, I believe, with comments on Cambodia. What is the level of an isolationist America that you gauge, and particularly the isolationalism of President-elect Biden? Well, Tom, to me, this is going to be a really interesting thing to watch with how Biden's team puts together their foreign policy. 
even though a lot of this team came from the Obama era, they just won't be able to go back to the same globalization agenda that yeah. was uh, you know, typical 10 or 15 years ago. And I think we'll see a bit more of a pivot to more inward-thinking policies, still taking a much more multilateral approach, but one that is not overstretching <clears throat> well, the U.S. overseas. You went right where I wanted to go. I mean, what do we pivot to? What are we going to pivot to what in 2021? Well, I think that Biden will be trying to find some kind of third way in between, you know, Trump's more populist messaging and, again, more of the the globalization agenda from before. And I think that will mean a still engaging strongly in terms of diplomatic efforts, in terms of working with with allies and with international institutions. But in terms of just free reign with free trade agreements and some of the enthusiasm behind that that we've seen in the past, a bit more attention to what that would mean for American workers. American industries and trying to keep some focus there, um, rhetorically for sure, but hopefully on policy as well. How about how difficult will it be for Biden to reestablish some of the ties with allies that perhaps have been frayed over the past four years? Well, Lisa, it'll be a little bit of a challenge, but honestly, um, you know, many other of our, our allies, especially European allies, are quite keen to see the Biden presidency. We're very quick to, um, to congratulate and welcome president-elect. So a lot of those ties will move forward, and especially as countries know that it's in their best interest to keep those positive relations going with this administration. Julie Norman, thank you so much for the briefing this morning. Just an extraordinary Wednesday. Good to speak to you with UCL uh, in London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.